morning again. It's a little heavy. Hold on. Let me try this. There we go. All right. Sometimes there are scary noises I can hear that scare me, but I don't know if you can hear them. You hear that rumble sound? It's like the moment before the feedback, and it explodes and scares everyone. So I'm getting a little bit of that just like deep rumble. It's probably because my voice is so deep. That may be the issue. I don't know. That's it. Um, Well, welcome again back to the book of James. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this week, and we are calling the series Faith Works. And what James does is he challenges us that faith looks like something. In the first century, uh, there was a way of thinking about the faith that is very similar to the way we often think about the faith now. It's called Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnosticism taught that you just needed special knowledge. You just needed the right secret password, the right special doctrinal idea, and then everything was fine. But the New Testament says that if you genuinely know God through the gospel, it will change your life. So faith is not just an idea that hangs in the air. Faith is something that transforms our life. God's grace changes us. And the person whose life has been changed by grace trusts in God. That's what we call faith. This week we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It can be found on page uh, 1012 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs, if you want to follow along in one of those black Bibles. I want to make a couple of references to the Apostle Paul. Um, Just to start off with, these are just cross-references you can write down, um, because we often are taught, uh, depending on where you get your teaching from, but sometimes we're taught that Paul and James don't agree. Uh, I would make the case that Paul and James agree perfectly and use a couple of words in a slightly different context in the passage we're going to look at today. Um, But a couple of passages by Paul that you might want to look up. One is 1 Corinthians 13.2. 1 Corinthians 13.2, Paul says that if I have faith but no love, I'm nothing, which is basically a paraphrase of what James is going to say today. If I have faith, but I have no love, I am nothing. And then Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, so it's 1 Corinthians 13 and 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, test yourselves, see if you are really in the faith. And that also is an idea that James is talking about today. Paul generally talks about faith in the idea of it being a genuine, real, saving faith. Today, James is going to say, you know what, there's people out there that claim to have faith, but it's not a real faith. So that's part of the difference in how James and Paul face this, is Paul just genuinely or generally talks about faith as if it's real. Uh, But James says, you know what, there's people out there that say they have faith and it's not real. It's not real. Um, So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, I have the the great job today of trying to get a bunch of you unsaved, okay? So we're going to read chapter 2, and uh, actually I shouldn't say it's my job, it's James' job, it's the Holy Spirit's job today to challenge you. And have you really consider, do I have a real faith? Do I really trust Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the hard words. We'll get to that more towards the end of the sermon. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James is going to challenge us that it's possible to have a fake faith. It's possible to say that you have faith, but not have a genuine, active, saving faith. Not have a real trust in God. Earlier in the book of James, I'm going to remind you some of the things that James has said already about the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. In James chapter 118, he said, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So there he establishes that it is by God's will, his pleasure, his delight. God delights to save us. We don't save ourselves by our works. We don't save ourselves by working up inside a better faith. But our faith and our works are a response to God who lovingly, graciously gives us new life. And then we saw last week in James 2, 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. James repeatedly paints a picture of a God who is gracious and who intercedes in our life, who initiates love and grace. And then our response to that is trust. The New Testament word faith is the same word trust. We trust him. Say, this is a saving, loving God who's reached out to me to rescue me from my sin. I love him. And as we love him, trust him, respond to him, our lives are transformed. It looks like something. Again, it's not just an idea floating out in space, but it's a God who sends his Holy Spirit, changes our hearts. We can't help but love him and live in new ways. Are we perfect? We're not perfect. One of the great examples that James gives is Rahab the prostitute. And he says, Rahab the prostitute responded in faith by doing this work. She did something as a mark of her faith, but it wasn't a, she worked perfectly and worked off her sins by being so righteous. I I think that would have been hard for Rahab the prostitute to do. But she responded in active living faith. Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to help us with this today. God, we we pray for your help. There's a lot of difficult um, and distracting things that we're facing today. I pray that you would help us to understand that you are good, that you are generous, that you are the one that shows initiating love towards us. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We recognize this morning, Lord, what you said earlier in James, uh, that you are generous and you love to give good gifts. And if we lack wisdom, we can ask you and you'll respond. And so right now we ask you, help us, Lord. We pray that your spirit would meet us here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I was uh, having lunch with a friend who's a fireman, and he gave me kind of a tour of the firehouse. And so a fireman's job is to save people when there's an emergency, right? A fireman is not a fireman just because he dreams about saving people. A fireman is a fireman because he's passed the academy, 
He's met all the requirements, and he works at the fire station, and he's built a system around his life so that he can save people. A fireman is a fireman because of what he does, not because of what he dreams about. And my friend was giving me a tour of the fire station, and I remember this one thing that just a little, a little detail that I thought was fascinating. They leave their fire suit, you know, the heavy fireproof uh, coveralls that they have, they leave them uh, unfurled around their boots so that when the bell rings, they can literally run out and jump into their boots, into their coveralls, pull them up and strap them on and run out the door. Um, sometimes I plan ahead, you know, the night before, like what I'm going to wear, but I've never planned ahead to that level of detail, right? But his life in the fire station was built around this action. It was built around uh, this reality of what they were going to do. Again, it wasn't just something they dreamed about or thought about, but he was prepared for action. Actually, as we were walking through the fire station, he was showing me what they do. He had a buddy whose coveralls had the strap on the wrong side of the boot, and he just reached down and noticed it and put the strap on the other side. And I was like, what, what were you doing? He said, well, when he jumped in, he would have pulled it up, and the strap would have been you know, twisted around his leg the wrong way. Then he would have taken it all off and put it all back again. So he's just fixing it with that little detail. What James says when he comes to this passage is James says that a real faith, a real trust in God looks like something. It acts. And one of the big distinctions between how Paul talks about faith and how James talks about faith is Paul just generally doesn't. I, I read those two passages in 1 Corinthians 13 and 2 Corinthians 13, but, but other than that, very rarely does Paul talk about the idea of a fake faith. He's usually focused on a real faith, and so that's one of the best ways to understand the distinction between the way uh, the two authors use this language. The first thing that I want to point out as James takes us through examining what a saving faith looks like is that saving faith is more than words. Saving faith is more than words. Um, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So right there, you, you can see he's saying, I'm talking about a certain kind of faith. Can that faith save him? If you just say you have faith, can that faith save you? Is that enough? And so, again, I, I said earlier, this is a difficult sermon today because many of us have been taught, if you just say the magic words, you're saved, that it's that easy. And I would say um, the way it's described in Romans is that you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. It's not just say the magic words and you're saved, but it's say what you believe to be true. Do you believe truly that Jesus is your only hope? And so if you just say magic words, um, that, that's not how it works. But you have to have a heart that trusts that Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, what God provided for us in Jesus taking our place and dying for us and rising from the dead, that that is enough. And so saving faith is a true faith that trusts that Jesus is enough. Do you truly trust that Jesus is enough or do you believe your religious participation is enough? Or do you believe the religious words you've said are enough? Or do you believe the secret doctrine or idea that you believe or think is enough? What is it that you think is enough? In the end, does it come back to you or does it come back to God? Does it come back to what Jesus has done? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, says he has faith, but has no 
deeds, has no works, can that kind of faith save him? And James' indication is no. That kind of faith is not enough. He says it again uh, further down, verse 14, he brings up this idea, and then he says it again in verse 18 through 19. If you look at verses 18 and 19, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So a lot of the authors believe what he's doing here is making a distinction between like different kinds of gifts, right? Um, We've talked about how Peter distinguishes. There's kind of two general kinds of giftedness in the church. You know, there's those that are more gifted as teachers, and there's those that are more gifted as servers, right? Some, Some people are really good at getting things done. Others are have the gift of teaching and explaining, and kind of every other gift, you know, Paul has these long gift lists. Those can all be kind of broken down in those two categories. Okay, that's fine. Paul's saying, that's, or James is saying, that's, that's fine, but that doesn't work in this instance when it's applied to saving faith. You can't say, well, I'm just, I'm just gifted in talking, right? I mean, that would be easy for me to say, right? Like, I'm, I'm the talker. I just get to say stuff, but I don't, I don't have time to actually love people or care for people or live a life of holiness. I, I don't, that's somebody else's job. That's someone else's gift in the body of Christ, to, to live holy, to serve people, to be nice. I get to talk about it, right? James is saying that's ridiculous. That, that's not what the distinction of gifts means. There might be someone that's more gifted in speaking, but that doesn't mean they're off the hook and they don't have to obey Jesus. That doesn't mean they don't have to love him. They don't have to respond with their lives. And so James drives the point home, and he says this in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So if you think mental assent, if you, do, if you think just having an idea of truth about God is a saving faith, Paul or James, again, says even the demons have mental assent. Even the demons believe in that sense, and they shudder. It's almost an irony here, right? He's, he's pushing us to move. He's wanting us to, to live our life out in action out of this real saving faith. He wants it to look like something. He wants it to be more than words. He says, even demons at least shudder. At least the demons shudder. You're sitting on the couch saying that you have right belief and faith. The demons at least, at least shake. There's at least some movement in the demons' lives. So it's more than words. It's more than words. I have a picture here of a library. Um, Think about all the things you've learned over the years about the Christian faith. Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you are brand new to the church. It's very important to us to learn about who God is. As we learn who he is, as he's revealed himself in scripture, it helps us to better relate to him. But what can happen is we get, we get kind of, we veer off course, we get sidelined, we get on a rabbit trail when we take that very beautiful idea of learning who God is and responding to him in the scriptures and understanding truths about God, and, and we separate that off from relating to him. Everything that we learn in the scriptures, every doctrine that we learn should drive us to love him more, should drive us to, to worship him more, should drive us to love others more. That's what James is saying throughout this letter, that, that knowledge drives us to a greater intimacy with God. So if you find in your life a desire to continue to collect more and more facts about God, but you don't find yourself loving God more or loving others more, 
then it's time to repent. And James would go so far even to say it's possible to know all kinds of things about God and not really know him and not really have a genuine, saving, intimate knowledge of God, to not really love him. That was my own story. As I uh, grew up uh, in and out of the church, our family didn't go to church until about the fifth grade, uh, sixth grade, actually. So when when I was in the sixth grade, we started going to church, and I would hear preachers say at church, and I would hear this in other uh, meetings, that if you say these words, right, if you uh, repeat after me, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I accept now you forget. I accept now you forget. You know, if, if you recite these words, you will be saved. Well, well, I recited those words about a thousand times when I was a teenager because I didn't want to go to hell. But I didn't love God. I didn't want to do what God said. I didn't follow Jesus at all. I just recited some words every time I was given an opportunity to recite some words. And so I believe some of you are in that same position that I was in. You know facts. You might have studied at a library. You might have been to a Sunday school. You might have recited some words about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. So I want to plead to you to repent from just knowing stuff and trust in Jesus himself. To in your heart recognize that you are a sinner. Not just to recite the words, I'm a sinner, but to know that you're a sinner and you're lost apart from him, There's nothing you can do, no amount of religious participation, no amount of religious chanting, no amount of reciting of the right words, no amount of memorizing the right words, no amount of studying the right words can save you. But Jesus can. Jesus can. So we have to get unsaved sometimes before we can get saved. And that took a while for me because I thought I'd gotten saved a thousand times. I thought I'd gotten saved a thousand times, and that's the culture that I was raised in. And it wasn't until the age of 17, after, well, that would have been six years of reciting the proper words, that I finally was blown away by God's grace for me through Jesus, what he did for my life, and responded in faith. And I started following him. James says it's more than words. My goal today, as I said, is for those of you that believe you know the right facts to question whether or not you really know God. Do you really love him? Do you desire to walk with him? Do you have a heart that he's changing? Not, are you perfect? But are you moving towards him in love? Because he has moved towards you sovereignly by his grace and changed your heart and awakened you and given you life and given you eyes to see. His Holy Spirit come into your life and transformed you. The next thing that James says is that saving faith helps others. Saving faith helps others. Paul talks about this somewhat in his argument in Romans. And again, Paul and James talk about the faith and justification and the role that works play in slightly different ways. But in the book of Romans, where Paul emphasizes that we can't be saved by our works, but we're saved by trusting in Jesus alone, in that book, Paul also argues to the Jews that what you see happening is you see Gentiles, apart from the law, trusting in Jesus and then doing the good works of the law. They begin loving other people. They begin helping other people. So this is kind of a key part of the flow of Paul's argument in Romans is that it's salvation by faith in Jesus alone, but then that salvation looks like something, and it begins to uh, work itself out in hearts of obedience. 
where both Paul and the author of the Hebrews talks about the law being written on our hearts. So then we want to obey the law instead of just the law being out there, something that we despise, but we want to do what God says. So saving faith helps others. We see this in verses 15 through 17. In verses 15 through 17, he says it this way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It's, it's useless. It's no good. It doesn't accomplish anything. So James is arguing if you have a faith that's joined with works, if you have a saving faith, if you have a genuine faith, if you have an active faith that looks like something, it's going to move towards people in love. We've talked about this before. If you truly believe that God has moved on you in love, that God has come to you in Jesus, then your heart can't help but move towards others in love. If you believe that God is the God of initiating grace, then you will live a life of initiating grace towards others. And so James is saying it, it just doesn't even make sense to say to someone, hey, I wish the best for you, see you later, and then say that you have real faith in Jesus. Because that's not how God acted towards us. God didn't look down on us and say, ah, oh, poor guys, I hope they get their stuff together. I, I feel sympathetically towards you people, you know? That, that's, it's like, is that the gospel? God feels bad for us. God sympathizes with us. God says, hope things work out for you. That, that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is God took it upon himself, that Jesus paid the cost of our sin and our death and our rebellion. That's the good news, that Jesus took ownership of that for us. And so if we believe that, if we trust in that, if we have a real faith in that, if we're really trusting in him, then we're going to take ownership of others. We're going to care for others. Now, in the political realm, there's often, you know, this football of the poor and how we help the poor. And, you know, one side hates the poor and the other side cares for the poor. I would make the case that sometimes taking ownership of other people's problems doesn't mean solving all of them for them. It means stepping into the muck and helping them learn to be healthy, right? So I just want to be careful of that because sometimes in the political realm, in the soundbite realm, that is misunderstood. There's a great book that a lot of us have read here at the church called When Helping Hurts. It's really good at helping us to understand, you know what, we don't want to go to other, either extreme. One extreme says people need to figure it out on their own. The other extreme says, no, if you really love them, you'll help them and solve all their problems. I believe there's a gospel middle that says we're going to move towards them in love, we're going to help them, but we're going to do the hard work of walking alongside them and helping them to be independent and helping them to live a healthy life, not just throwing money, throwing out something to them and walking away but actually getting involved in people's lives. So I recommend that book to you if you're struggling to understand that as it's debated in the public sphere. The book is called When Helping Hurts. It's a really helpful book to think about how to help people wisely. But here James is saying you will help people. You will help people. You will help others if you have a real faith. You'll be moved towards others in love. Again, does that mean you're going to do it perfectly? Does that mean you're going to have like this 100% record and there's this trail of uh, mended lives behind you. No, sometimes you're going to help others. It's not going to go well. Sometimes you're going to help others and it's going to go great. But you're going to move towards others in love. That's what James is challenging us with here. I have an illustration that I've found often uh, helpful here. And that is the decorator towel. Any of you have uh, special 
pressed linen towels that you put out when guests come over? Any of you do that? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, my mom did that when we were kids. Uh, so my mom had these special, I don't know if this is an old thing, and maybe people don't do it anymore, but she had special uh, linen towels, and they would, they would be ironed and starched, and they would be placed out, uh, and then me, as like a 10-year-old boy, I would wash my hands, and you know, of course, I was 10, so I'd kind of halfway wash my hands, and then I'd dry my hands on the fancy linen white towel, and then I'd kind of leave marks, because my hands weren't really that clean when I was drying them off, and I'd get in big trouble, and she would say, you're not supposed to use those towels, they're for decoration, right? And, and sadly, I think that's how we live our lives sometimes. We think, no, 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 don't, don't get too close to me. I've got to look clean. I've got to look pretty. And I believe what James is saying is that our life is meant to be used. We're not meant to be starched decorator towels. We're supposed to be like Jesus who gave up his life for others. We're not supposed to just be on display now, I'm not saying it's a sin to have decorative towels. I'm not trying to say that. But, but I am saying it's a sin to live like you're a decorator towel, right? James would say, real faith helps people. Real faith steps out and does something. My question for you is, who are the people that God is helping, uh, asking you, calling you to help? Saving faith helps others. What is that looking like in your life? We look on the news, we see reports of needs, of uh, people that are struggling, that it's overwhelming. It's easy to just turn it off, right? So I'd say, first of all, you need to look at your family first. That's, that's the way the New Testament prioritizes things. That's the way the Old Testament prioritizes. Who are the people in your family that need help? Start there. Who are the people in your family right now that need help? Who are those people? Ask the Lord to give you wisdom in meeting those needs. And then what about uh, the family of faith, the church? Paul says we should do good to all men, but especially the family of faith. Who are those around you, in your sphere of influence in the family of faith, that need help? And then thirdly, in, in your community, in your broader sphere of influence, your circle of influence, who are those that need help around you? If you want to display what God is like, then you'll help people. You won't just say, I hope things go well for you, but you'll take steps towards them. Now, again, does that mean we can help everyone all the time perfectly? No. But if we love Jesus, we'll walk like Jesus. We'll look like Jesus. We'll take these steps. And again, what I want you to understand is we don't do this to get saved. We do this because we are saved. And that is repeatedly the theme of the New Testament. If you are really saved, if you really have faith, a real faith, a saving faith, You'll act this way towards others. So again, one of the calls is not just for you to help people, but if you just don't give a rip about people and don't want to help anybody, it's to repent and to recognize that you are living a life apart from Jesus, that you have a heart that's not been changed by the gospel. Again, part of James's uh, effort in my communication this morning is, is to help you get unsaved. Your only hope is Jesus. Your hope is not in going out and saving a few more people helping a few more people, serving a few more people. But if you are saved, recognize that we're not to live our lives on the shelf as a decorator towel, starched, linen, looking beautiful. But we are to get dirty. We are to get involved. We are to get messy, helping those around us. The next thing that we want to look at is that saving faith proves itself. Saving faith proves itself. So we talked about the distinction between how Paul typically talks about faith as something real, right? So when faith 
is emphasized in the letters of Paul. Paul is saying uh, that we're saved by faith alone, and that faith is a real faith. But if it's a real faith, Paul would agree with James that a real faith looks like something and has works that goes along with it. Um, And so James is emphasizing there's two kinds of faith. There's kind of a fake faith, and there's a real faith. James uh, talks about this fake faith that Paul doesn't seem to talk about as much. There's also now a distinction in how they use the terms justification. Um, how many of you ever used the word justified? Like, I was trying to justify myself. Have you ever used that word in, in conversation? Uh, I'm not sure how, how often it's used still in modern conversation, but I would argue that most of the time outside of the church, when we use the word justify, we're using it the way James uses it and not the way Paul uses it. So what I would argue is that Paul has a very technical theological term in mind when he uses justification. It means God's reckoning of us as righteous as Jesus because of our union with Christ. So that's a theological framework that Paul is using. Paul is using technical, theological, churchy language. James is using everyday language. James is saying public vindication. That's how we use it in our everyday language, right? Not in the church. In the church, we tend to use it like Paul in a specialized theological way. But out in our everyday life, you would say, yeah, that person was really trying to justify themselves, right? They were really trying to show that they were right. They are trying to prove themselves publicly. That's the way James is using the term. The term can be used both ways. The term can be used about five other ways. At, at its root, the word means just or righteous. And so it can mean, are you shown to be righteous? Are you proven to be righteous? Are you declared to be righteous? Are you reckoned to be righteous? Are you proving yourself to others that you're righteous? It can, it can mean all those variety of terms. So we need to clarify that. And we need to make sure we're careful as those who study the scriptures that when we come to a seeming contradiction of the scriptures, that we do our homework, we work at it. And we don't just walk away with our favorite verse and say, well, this verse says this, so I'm going to decide all my theology based on a couple of words and how I immediately understand them. But we do the harder work of, of really listening to the text and seeing how it's used. So let's look at the text here. We'll look at verses 20 through 26. He says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So here he's going to show. Faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So he's now, I would argue, using it in publicly vindicated. Did he not fulfill, complete the faith he had? Did he not demonstrate the faith he had? That's how James is using the term justification. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. These are all hints at what he means by justified. Completed, fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So that scripture, verse 23, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, happened years and years and years before he gave this other act of offering up his son in obedience to God. And so what James is doing is he's taking this instance and he's saying, Abraham was justified in the Pauline sense, declared righteous, right? That's what he says here, counted to him as righteousness when he believed God. And then later he fulfilled that, he completed that, he publicly vindicated that. That's how James is using the term justification. He was justified then later by his works. So you can see here, even James is using the term in both ways. He's using that root word, just righteousness in both ways. He's using it 
There's that instance where God counted it to him as righteousness, declared him just. You're just because of your faith. And then later, James was justified in the public vindication sense. Later, he showed it to those around him. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So when we see the phrase in verse 24, you see a person's justified by works and not by faith alone, what we can do is we can say, the simple surface reading of that must be correct, and we're going to just throw out everything else the Apostle Paul has said in multiple books in the New Testament. Or we can do what's often called systematic theology and take all the scriptures and put them together and say, how are these different authors using these words? How does this all make sense? How does this all go together? So I would say saving faith proves itself. Saving faith vindicates itself. Saving faith shows itself. One of the ways Paul often expresses this concept is with words like show and manifest. So you hear that language a lot in Paul. Paul says that we, we show this in our lives. We display this faith in our lives. Paul uses the language of fruit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. There's, there's something that's produced in our life if we have real faith in Jesus. So here's a picture of some police officers collecting evidence at a crime scene. There was a poster in a Sunday school classroom that I used to go to as a teenager, and I hated this poster. It made me furious because it applied directly to my own heart. And the poster said, um, if you were convicted of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence? Or if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I hated that poster because I knew there wouldn't be. I knew there wouldn't be. I was like, well, I prayed the magic words. I said the words a thousand times. Isn't that enough? The poster made me mad because it seemed to imply that I needed to have a real faith, that I needed to actually love Jesus and not just say the magic words. And I would say that's true. I'd say that's what James is saying here as well. We have to have a real faith, a saving faith, an active faith. This has been the most helpful way for me to kind of diagram this out in my own mind. Um, Faith and works, does that produce salvation? Or does faith produce a salvation without works? Those are kind of the uh, the two wrong choices, the two extremes, right? So the teams in the history of Christianity that really want to emphasize our works, sometimes they go wrong by saying faith plus works leads to salvation. Faith plus works produces salvation. It's not enough to trust Jesus. You have to do a bunch of good things and add that to the scales, and then you'll be saved. And then other people react to that and say, no, 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 it's faith alone, it's faith alone, it's faith alone, meaning faith leads to salvation, and works has nothing to do with it, right? I would say the biblical balance that both James and Paul teach, the balance that both James and Paul teach is that faith produces salvation and works. Faith produces salvation and works. A real faith, a saving faith, faith alone in Jesus, in Jesus alone, produces salvation and works. So that faith is not alone in your life. It's not just words you're talking about. It's a real faith in Jesus. It produces salvation. It also is going to produce works in your life. I believe that is how James would say it, and that is how Paul would say it. And when we compare both books, when we compare 
both sides, we see that they agree, even though on a surface reading, a first reading, it doesn't look like they agree at all. It doesn't look like they agree at all. So saving faith proves itself. And again, I would reiterate, Abraham uh, was not a perfectly righteous man. Anybody ever read the stories of Abraham? Some of you read some of those? Uh, Like, since you've been an adult, right? You've read it and kind of realized how R-rated some of these books are. Um, Rahab the prostitute, was she perfect? No. Did she merit righteousness before God? Did she earn God's approval? Did she do enough righteous deeds to balance the scales? No. She lived out her faith. She lived out her faith. But her faith was in God. She feared God. It's one of the ways that the New Testament and the Old Testament talks about faith. You actually fear God. You see him as awesome and mighty and as the one to really be respected. So both Abraham and Rahab are examples of living out, vindicating publicly their faith through works. But it's God ultimately who saves us. It's what God does. It's his grace. It's not anything we do. It's not anything we do. It's ultimately what he does for us. What he does for us. And that expresses itself in us trusting him, loving him, responding to him, loving others the way he loved us. As we wrap up, I want us to remember how Jesus didn't just talk about his love for us, but he loved us. Jesus didn't just say nice things to us, but he came into our world and he died for us. There's a story about uh, some citizens in a little town called Le Chambon in France, and there were Christians there that loved and cared for Jews that were being uh, persecuted and chased out of Germany and France. And these Christians would hide the Jews, they would love the Jews, they would befriend the Jews when the Nazis were trying to kill them. And as they were trying to get these Jews to safety, they got them out into this neutral territory in Switzerland. And many of the Jews then told the story later about how these Christians loved them, but these people in Switzerland just tolerated them. And it's an interesting example of Christian ethics. It's not enough to just tolerate people. It's not enough to just not be mean to people. That's not love. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if you have faith but you have no love, it's useless. You're nothing. If you have a real faith in Jesus who loved us, you'll love others. So my question for you this week is, who is the Holy Spirit challenging you to love this week? Who is the Holy Spirit challenging you to love this week? Do you want to love them? Do you desire to love them because you know that Jesus has loved you? Let me pray for us and respond together in worship. God, we thank you that you do love us and that you've shown us that through Jesus. I pray that you would help us uh, to receive by faith the beauty of what you've done for us on the cross dying for our sins, rising from the dead. I pray also that we would uh, display this faith through our works, that we would publicly vindicate this righteousness that's declared through Jesus, that that righteousness would then be shown in our lives. God, help us to live new lives because of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.